I'm real thankful for this church, um, for this congregation. There is so much care. There's so much love here. I mean, I first saw that uh, when my late wife and I began to come about seven years ago, and uh, we ran into some real difficulties at that time, um, both with Nancy's health and issues with my son. And the outpouring of love and care from this church just blew us away. And shouldn't the body of Christ be that? Shouldn't we be the ones that have that, have that outpouring of love and of heart? Because isn't that the heart of God? To love and to care, uh, to rescue, to receive again those that have been lost. Um, all of those things. And that's what I saw here. And I'd also like to acknowledge that, you know, Thanksgiving is maybe for some of us the first holiday that you've had without a loved one who has passed. And um, there has been so many people that, you know, that I didn't think would know about this, that have reached out in love, both to Wendy, uh, I know to Jay Lockwood, who lost his son earlier this year. Um, all of us have experienced a loss of one kind or another, and the holidays can be difficult. And I just wanted to acknowledge that and to, and, uh, to speak to our hearts that, that uh, there is a high cost <laughs> to love. You know, it, it, there is. There's a, there's a price to pay when you love. And sometimes that price is expressed in grief. And it lets you know that you've loved. And there's a beauty in that, because God is love. And I wanted to talk with us uh, this morning. I hate to give a title to a sermon, but I will, because they asked me to give them one. And that is, God really loves us. He really does. God really loves us. And I want to minister a message of, of hope of love, a message of mercy and grace, because that's the kind of God that we serve, the kind of God that we love. Um, and a message of forgiveness and restoration. He loves to restore. He loves to bring back together that which has been separated. Um, by God's grace, I would love to unveil the heart of God for us, for the church. And I heard a statement this weekend, I don't remember if it was on the radio or I read it or something, but somebody said, love is fragile. And it, I know it is not with God because his love is anything but fragile, it's relentless. But it can be for us, it's, it's easily broken, it's easily dented or wounded. Um, and it, it does demand all the care that we can give it. You know, the love that we have, I, I really do think we should nurture it. We should feed it. We should till that garden and let love grow evermore. 
God's love is strong. You know, it's relentless. He is for us. He's not against us. He's never against us. You know, if God be for us, who can be against us? Doesn't it say that in Romans chapter 8? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. It can be hard to fathom that God is for you, knowing who you are. It's hard for me to fathom that God is for me, knowing who I am, who I have been, and a lot of times who I continue to be, that God would continue to be for me. But he is. God is for us. He's always for us. He said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. I'd like to open in a, an unusual place to open, but that would be Matthew chapter 27, 46. This is something that I think Wendy and I talked about this past week. Um, Jesus is on the cross, Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you're like me, you may have heard a sermon where it was said that, well, God couldn't stand to look on sin, so he had to turn his back on Jesus. Or that God hates sin so that he had to turn his back on Jesus. And I would like to say, that's not true. That's, if that were true, then he would, his back would be turned to us at all times. If he can't stand to look on sin, then he couldn't stand to look on us. And yet the Bible says that, that his thoughts of us, Psalm 139, are so numerous you can't count them. They're like the sand of the sea. That's how much he thinks of us. He's focused on us. He's not turning his back on us. So what could that possibly mean? You know. Did God turn his back on Jesus? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was that for? Why did he do that? And in Isaiah chapter 53... He said it because of love. (laughs) I'll show you. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And it was the Father's good pleasure to smite him. Why? Why? Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The why he did that is because he loves us. He wanted us. He wanted a people for his own. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. That's what that moment was all about. That moment of Jesus on the cross when he bore our sins. The why to that is that so God could have us. 
so that we could be redeemed, so that his shed blood could pay the price that we could be together with God. You know, God created man. And this is really interesting. This is not in my notes. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then as you go through the day one, day two, day three, God spoke, he said, let there be light. He said, let there be a firmament. He said, he spoke to the ground and, you know, plants, trees, and all that, you come up. He spoke to the waters, you know, and all these things came up. And the word created does not come up again until he said, let us make man in our own image. And he created man, male and female created he them in his own image. There was something special that happened with man and that is he made us like him. And he made us for relationship. You know, he... he, he he made us to walk and talk with him, just like Adam did. It's, it's been worked into our DNA, if you will. It's part of who we are. And that's why, without God, we have that missing part in us, that cry in our heart for something else. There's got to be something more. There has to be something else than this, right? He built that cry for relationship right into our spirit. And then when Adam and Eve rebelled, or I should say Adam rebelled, then, I mean, did God do this? You know, uh, what did I tell you? I told you not to do that. What did I tell you? I can hear myself as a parent. See? What did I tell you? Have you ever said that? Um, you've made your choice. Now deal with it. Or you made your bed. Now lie in it. Which he very well could have done. But the first thing that he did was he laid out the plan of redemption. That promised seed that would come to redeem. And that's, he is all about redemption. And all the pain and the suffering in the world, that is because of sin. Please don't blame God for all that. He's all about redeeming what has been lost, what has been broken. He is all about putting back together. He immediately set that in motion. So I'd like to look at Luke chapter 15. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but there are more characters in it than just that prodigal. And in Luke 15, 11, we'll start. This is another one. Did this father throw up his hands in frustration? What did you do that for? You know, there's so many things he could have said. But in verse 11, uh, Jesus is putting forth this parable. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. You know, 
and he because he had none of that that money was all gone and he began to be in want and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine and for a Jew to be out there with pigs which are which was just the worst thing possible that's how that's how low he had sunk whatever that lowest that we could have sunk to in our culture that's where he had sunk to that lowest place kind of beyond all hope you know you look at them on the street corner and think they're hopeless there is no hope for them I don't know if this fits in. Uh, there was a, a homeless guy that used to hang around the shop of my business uh, some years ago. And, and he was in quite a bit. He was one of those that you would say, hey, there's no hope for this person, right? And um, he came around once in a while and he said, hey, do you have any work for me? And I thought, ooh, I don't know, you know about having him represent anything that I do. But he had told me that he had uh, uh, painted, like done bridge painting, you know, big painting, that kind of industrial painting before. And I had a job on a, on a building. They wanted a stripe painted around the top of their, uh, it, it was kind of a factory tower. It was community coffee is what it was. Their plant across the river, they've got a tall section in the middle, and they've got a painted band around it. And I said, well... I don't feel like doing that myself, <laughs> thank you. And uh, so I asked him if he would come, and I watched him do the work, and, and it was pretty good. And, um, and it hadn't been a straight path, but that same guy works for me uh, today. And um, he's been clean for years, and God has done a real work in his life. Um, we married him and his wife in our living room a few years ago. It was beautiful. God loves to redeem. And this, this young man was at the lowest point you could imagine. He was out there feeding the pigs. And then he says, he came, he came to himself. He's like, my father's servants, they've got plenty to eat. And here I am laying in a, you know, in a pigsty eating the pig food. What am I doing here? I will go back to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Make me as one of your servants. And so he comes back to the father. And the father could easily have been doing one of these, right? I told you so, you know. What have you done? I can't believe you did this. He wasn't, it just that he wasn't doing that. It wasn't just that he showed compassion, but he was in a place where he could be scanning the horizon. And he saw that boy coming back afar off. That is the heart of God for us. He's yearning for us. He's the one that always goes after the one when the 99 are safe. He's scanning the horizon for us. He's watching for us. He's yearning for us. 
You know, you that are praying for prodigals, whether it be a child, uh, a relative, a friend, um, a brother or a sister, I hope you're not treating that prodigal like, you poor lost soul, let me fix you. Um, It's easy to do. It's easy to, to, to think that, you poor lost soul. But the, when this boy came back, Father, I have sinned. And I mean, he falls down before him. What the father did was he put a robe around him. And it's more than just that he put clothes on him that he didn't have. He put shoes on his feet. He put a ring on his finger. It's what it says here. What does that mean? That, mean, that, that's, that ring, that's the signet ring. Very important. What that signet ring, ring meant was that you are now the principal heir. That signet ring was like um, an American Express card. It was, it, it, it was the key to the riches of the family. You had access to it all. You had authority over all of, of the family's estate. That's what that ring was for. And that's what was done for that prodigal when he came to the father. Father, I have sinned. That father brings out that robe of authority. Shoes on his feet and then that signet ring. You have access to everything in the kingdom. It is yours. Well, there's yet another character, a third character. And he's found in verse 25. Now, the elder son was in the field. And as he came and he drew uh, near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come. Their father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, father came out and entreated him, saying, he, he answered his father, saying, these many years I serve you. I didn't transgress against you at any time. I've always done right. You never gave me the fatted calf. You never killed a kid for me. Uh, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, your son, is come back, you know, who's devoured your living with harlots and, and you've killed the fatted calf for him. He said, son, you were always with me and all I have is yours. It's, it is fitting that we should be merry and glad. So which brother are we? You know, that brother was religion. And religion envies those who have been forgiven, those who have been redeemed, is jealous. Religion was jealous of Jesus. When he came and said, I've, you know, I have come, like right there at his hometown. I've come to set at liberty those that are, that are bruised. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do these things to heal the brokenhearted, to break those chains. And they were offended at him. 
Like the religious ones, they were the ones that were the admired ones, the ones that did right, that had good social standing, the ones who were admired, the ones that did what they should do, always doing the right thing. But in their heart, in their heart, they will hate you. In their heart, they hated Jesus. And he's told his disciples that they hated me, they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It's amazing that he gave the keys, basically the keys to his kingdom, that father did, to that prodigal that returned. He made him heir of all things. And did you know that we are heirs of God? And we're co-heirs with Christ. You know, that elder brother, that religion, will they be the ones that Jesus spoke of that said, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. The Lord will always go after that lost sheep. And he was watching afar off, scanning the horizon, filled with longing and desire. And that is his heart for each one of us today. His heart is filled with longing and desire for us. Paul called the Philippians his dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. I think you'll find that in maybe Philippians 2. How much more does the Father love and long for us? And do you know that we are his crown? We are his prize. We are the thing that he has been looking for. He's not standing there with arms folded, tapping his foot. His arms are wide open. And his thoughts are full of you. How numerous are your thoughts of me, O Lord? Psalm 139. They're more than the sand in the sea. You can't count them. His heart is toward you. You know, the older brother, again, is religion. So moral, so upright, but inside is full of envy and hatred. Or as Jesus told the Pharisees, inside full of dead men's bones. Religion speaks of Jesus, but denies the power and and always misses the joy of God's love, the joy of his presence, the beauty of who he is. When we repent, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 says that. That not only means that you're forgiven, but that you are cleansed. And just think about what that means. You're, you're, you're refreshed. You're cleansed. You're given a fresh start every time. And so today, even moment by moment, He's saying today is a time for a fresh start. You get a fresh start now, today, right now. If you confess your sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So beautiful. So beautiful. You know, a repentant heart is soft to God. It's open to Him. It's, it's you know, you're, you're, you're soft, you're, you're pliable, you're able to be, to be molded to God's purposes. You're able to be moved. You're able to be led of the Holy Spirit when your heart is soft and repentant toward Him. A, a repentant heart is willing to take the blame. Like that young man, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know, it's all on me. A, a, a repentant heart is not defensive. It's not self-justifying. And I just think about this in marriage. It's so easy after you've been together with a person long enough to fall into arguing. And each person is defending their ground. You know, they got their ground and they're going to defend that ground. They're going to justify their own because, well, because, well, I'm right. You know, but a repentant heart is willing to take the blame. You know, a soft answer turneth away wrath, it says in Proverbs. And, and that, that softness is the heart that we have toward one another. That's really how it should be in the church of God. That beautiful softness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. One of my favorite places in the word of God. There's so much heart and passion in this. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, talks about godly sorrow that leads to re repentance. Now I rejoice, Paul says, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this self-same thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it worked in you, what clearing of yourselves, yeah, what indignation, like, man, I can't believe I did that. You know, you're indignant about it. What fear, yea, what vehement desire, what zeal in all things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. That is, that's what a repentant heart is like. It, there's, there's a real passion for God in it. You know, it's not, uh, you know, so many times when I've done wrong or I've failed uh, I, 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 my habit had been to kind of whistle past the graveyard. And, you know, I'm just going to forget about that. Instead of, uh, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to deal with my heart and to really have a zeal for God, a zeal for what He wants, you know, a passion for what He, what he desires. To have the heart of God. That's what he wants. Yes. 
Yes, I, you know, you could say, yes, I'm guilty. But we have an advocate on our side. Jesus Christ is our advocate, which is another way of saying our defense attorney. He is our defender. We don't have to defend ourselves. There's no need for that. There's no need to defend ourselves with one another or with God. Well, God, I was trying. We don't have to defend ourselves. He is our defender. When, when, when the Lord looks at us and he sees Jesus, then what he sees is perfection. You know, it's the spirit of God within us, the spirit of Christ within we have his inheritance. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But do you know that God has us as his inheritance? Now, it seems like kind of a bad deal for him. You know, like, you know what kind of exchange are you going to make? Well, I get him as my inheritance. He gets me as his inheritance? But that is exactly what the scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 1. The eyes of your understanding being, uh, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And really it's the church when it says the saints. Anytime you read in Ephesians or any of these epistles, they're really understood in the light of the saints. They're applicable to us, but he's talking to the church. And, and we, the church, we are his inheritance. In other words, we are what he gets out of all this. You know, I, I, a long time ago I asked myself, well, why did he bother why did he even bother? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he set all these things in motion. Why did he bother? He knew there was going to be trouble. Why did he even bother with it? And we, yes, we are why he bothered. We are the point of what he has done, that he could have us. Why would God do the things that he does? Well, the only explanation you can give is that God is love. Because his love, he has done all these things. His love has dragged him through the eons of history with men warring, murdering, killing, doing all these terrible things, suffering that we have suffered, all this, that he could have us. It's really because of his love. And that love of Christ enters the heart of his people. You know, there's so many, I, I didn't realize that people in this congregation had paid attention to, you know, the things that have gone, gone on in our lives. We've had so many people uh, tell us they're praying for us in this time. Like, really, you, you know, you know that this is that time? You know that today is Marshall's birthday? Um, you know, that today is my son's death day. People actually know that, and they, they pour it out in love like that. That is, man, that is, that's the church. That's the body of Christ. It's so beautiful. We are God's prize. We are his inheritance. How amazing is that? There's two parables in 
Matthew 13 that I'd like to just briefly look at. Matthew chapter 13. And this is where we will close. And I think they've been greatly misunderstood. Uh, we were with Jay and Marcia sitting at the table when we talked about these two um, parables here. In verse 40, 44, there it is. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof, he goes and he sells everything that he has and buys the field. Why? So he can have that treasure he knows is buried in there. And uh, again, the kingdom of heaven is like to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. And he finds a pearl of great price. And he went and sold everything that he had, and he bought it. And I was always taught. So, so maybe I should ask you, what is the pearl of great price? What is the buried treasure? Or who is the pearl of great price? It's probably the better question to ask. Who is the buried treasure? Now, I wasn't expecting anybody to raise their hand. and You could if you wanted to. I was taught that it's Jesus and that I wanted him so much that I, that I gave up everything else so that I could have him. But that's not what it's talking about. And especially if you read it in the, in the greater context. We're the buried treasure. And he valued us so much. He saw us buried there. He valued us so much that he gave everything that he had. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave everything that he had. He sold everything that he had so that he could have that field. Why? The field, the world, the whole world so that he could have that buried treasure. And it occurred to me that this is a, a, uh, a hint at the great mystery that was to be revealed uh, to Paul in Ephesians, that the Jews and the Gentiles would be of one body, and that one new man, making one new man, would be that hidden, buried treasure. And it's appropriate. We were in the dirt, right? We were buried in the dirt. He takes us out of the dirt. He buys the whole world so that he could have that treasure out of the dirt. We are his treasure. We're his prize. We are his inheritance. That is how much we are valued. God really does love us. That's how much you are, you are prized and cherished. That's how much you are loved. That's how much you are wanted. You know, we are his temple. God dwells not in temples made with men's hands. Paul told that to the Athenians. I think he was quoting uh, Isaiah chapter 66. God doesn't need any of that. We now are his temple. And I guess we will close in yet another scripture. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. So beautiful. 
Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 20. Uh, and we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. We're actually where God lives. We're built together for a habitation of God. Where he sits is where we are. That's what he always wanted. He doesn't dwell in temples made with men's hands. He dwells in that new man in the earth, the church. That's where his heart is. That's where he dwells. We live with him when we are in the church. And he lives with us. And he's calling us to that close communion with him. When we say that word communion, we're, we're talking about having a relationship with him. He made us, remember, for relationship. He made us like him so that we could be in relationship with him. And now that's where we are when we are born again and part of his family, part of his church. We are where he lives. He wants us. And yes, yes, we can begin. Um, God is calling. He's saying, come back. You know, and maybe, maybe we're at a place where, where we're feeling dry or we're feeling distance between our heart and the Father's heart. He's, he's scanning the horizon saying, come back. He's not asking us to undo the things that we have done. We can't. He's asking us to come. He's just saying, come. I'm here. I'm waiting for you. My riches are here for you. The robe, the signet ring, all of that. It's waiting here for you. You are my inheritance. Come and enjoy the inheritance that I have for you. That's how beautifully God loves us. He is our loving Father. I love that the Bible calls him Abba. That's, I guess, in our language, we would say Daddy, right? It's that close of a relationship. He is calling. Respond to his call. Respond to the call of his heart. He's scanning the horizon looking. Saying, come home. Come home. Come back. Come home. I want you. Yes, I know where you've been. I know what you've been doing. Come home. I want you. That's what he's saying. And I will clothe you. I will put that signet ring upon your hand. I will bring forth all that I have planned for you. If you will just let me. 
he knows the sorrow of our hearts. He knows where we are feel broken. And he's there to put that back together. He, he is a reconciler. He loves to put things back together that were separated. And when we become soft to him, he becomes everything to us. Oh, Lord. We give you ourselves, Lord. Come into our hearts and, and be everything that you intended to be. Thank you, Lord, for being, for living among us, for us being your living temple where worship is, is made to you, a sweet-smelling savor. Oh, thank you, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy. You have accepted us in the beloved, Lord. Thank you.